in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter, verse 24, this morning. Just as a reminder, last week we looked at the opening passage and we recognized that Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to several churches in the region of Galatia. So it was a circular, uh, circuitous letter. It went around from one church to the next after they read it. And since his last visit to that region, some false teachers had come through. They had infiltrated these churches and were beginning to teach a different gospel. Not only did they preach something that was untrue, but they challenged Paul's apostolic authority in order to undermine what was true, what he had taught them. And so Paul cut right to the chase, replacing his, right after his greeting, instead of having his typical section of thanksgiving, Galatians is the only letter that doesn't have one. And he replaces it instead with a rebuke. And after making it clear that there is no other gospel, that they had wandered away from the truth, Paul now in this passage explains um, how he was called to preach the one true gospel. So why should the Galatians trust Paul's gospel as opposed to the gospel of the Judaizers, the Judaizers those who had come through the false teachers, who had said they, they must be circumcised? Why should we trust Paul's gospel over the many other possible gospels that are out there? Well, Paul speaks about the nature of the gospel in this passage. He talks about really how it's both objective and as well as subjective. It contains unchangeable doctrinal truths, as well as an experiential component. And that's what I mean by subjective. There's an experiential component that all of us experience a little bit differently. It's not just cookie-cutter Christianity. So the objective nature of Christianity does not allow for radical shifts in doctrine. The Bible is unchanging. The gospel was delivered once for all, according to Jude 3. And so this is counter to our postmodern context, which suggests that we all have our own realities. And for, for you to question someone else's truth right, is, is blasphemy. Right? Let everyone believe whatever they want to believe and just kind of keep it to yourself. As long as you're not harming anyone, that's fine. Well, the gospel doesn't allow for that. The gospel has objective truth claims, and Christ's claims are exclusive. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. But on the other hand, there is this equally essential component of Christianity that is subjective or experiential. Paul's testimony shows that truth and experience are united. Now, if, if transformed lives testify to the truth of the gospel, then our sanctification is critical. The growth that we experience in and and through and by the Spirit because of our union with Christ, that's critical to the growth of the church. Has the truth set you free, or do you remain enslaved by sin? Paul doesn't claim perfection, but he has clearly been changed by this Christ who met him 
in his conversion. And so before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this testimony that we have from the Apostle Paul. As he shares with us the, the way in which you, you put a halt to the persecution that he, was, that he was doing to the church. And in fact brought him all the way to where he would be a proclaimer of the truth of the gospel. If you can do a work in the heart of a man like Paul then we can have confidence that you can work in anyone. And Lord, help us to not neglect our own hearts in this, to not be just thinking about other people, but to be thinking about ourselves. How have we understood the gospel? Have we met Christ? Have we submitted under his lordship? Have we confessed our faith in him? Have we repented of our sin? Have we been changed? Lord, we thank you that we have these promises that Christ, who began a good work in us, will continue to bring it to completion until his return. Or until we, until we die and, and enter into your presence. Lord, these are incredible and precious gifts, these promises. So help us to be encouraged this morning to reflect upon our own testimony and the work that you've accomplished in us. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Amen. This is God's holy word. So Paul talks about his life here in this passage, his, his life before, during, and after his conversion. It's really what we call today a testimony, a testimony of God's work 
and in through him. And so beginning in verse 11 and 12, we see how Paul received the gospel, how he received the message. Paul opens the letter. Go back to verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's now continuing that. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He's picking up that argument. This is, this is not from men. This is a message that came directly from God. He spoke about his divine, the divine origins of his apostolic authority previously there in verse 1, but now he's arguing for the divine origins of his message. Not only did he get his authority from God, he got the content of his gospel message from God. His primary claim is that the gospel came directly from Jesus. Paul had just said that he didn't receive the gospel from any man. Rather, the gospel came to him in the person of Jesus Christ. And so our, our God reveals himself. He truly exists. Atheists like to argue that belief in the Christian God is no different than belief in unicorns or the flying spaghetti monster. They mock Christianity and the Bible as absurd fairy tales. But one major flaw in this argument is that of revelation. Unicorns and flying spaghetti monsters are figments of someone's imagination. They haven't revealed themselves in the way God has. And so the idea of the Christian God, it it might sound absurd to some, but he's revealed himself through scripture, through his word. And some suggest that the stories are, are fabricated, but the claims of Christianity could have been verified by anyone at the time. And instead of killing the church, as you would think, if it were a lie, the church continued to grow and expand exponentially throughout the first century. So why doesn't Jesus reveal himself like that today? Why doesn't he continue to give us these experiences, these encounters with Jesus like Paul had on the road to Damascus? Well, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So God used to speak through prophets, but now he speaks through his son. And his son spoke to the apostles who recorded his word for us in the New Testament. That's one of the qualifications for a book to be in inscripturated to be given to us in the canon of the new testament is that it came from apostolic testimony not necessarily written by hand by the apostles but it came directly from a witness of an apostolic authority but god doesn't reveal himself to everyone all right he remains hidden to those who are spiritually blind and deaf and that's why the father must draw them according to john 6 44 In fact, worldly wisdom is actually a hindrance, not by design, but because of the fall. That everyone is hindered from seeing the truth. So I I grew up attending church, and and my my dad actually took us faithfully week after week. Um, But if I had my way, I would have stayed home. Especially when the 49ers were playing. 
Um, but that changed in, in seventh grade. I, I went to, to summer camp at Hume Lake, and it really was like the first time I, I, I truly understood the gospel. I grasped the reality and the consequences of my sin against God. I understood my separation from God and my need for a Savior. I recognized that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross in my place. And that if I place my faith in him, that I would have peace with God. It was a simple gospel message that I understood. There were so many doctrines that I had yet to discover and understand, but it was that simple gospel message that broke open. And, and, and a, really a flood of tears came out. Not that that shocks anyone here. Um, I can tend to, to tear up or get choked up in sermons. But, um, but it, was the, it, was, it was a work of the Holy Spirit in my heart. And, and something clicked, and I repented, and I placed my faith in Jesus. There's a lot of misconceptions, though, about that process, about what it means to receive Christ. Well, at the, at the very least, it involves a recognition of Jesus. Uh, maybe you've heard people praying a sinner's prayer or accepting Jesus Christ into your heart. And there's, there's some language there that, that is biblical, receiving, accepting. And yet this idea here of, of, of like a hole in your heart that exists, that's, that's not really biblical language. It's just our way of, of, of recognizing this mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes that language can be confusing and it can be misleading. Right, Paul's conversion story never mentions him praying or having a hole in his heart. Christian jargon sometimes is, is, is unnecessary and off-putting. There are several ways in which someone might receive the gospel, but it will always involve a recognition that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for them upon the cross and that he rose again, proving he was who he said he was. Right, these are the objective baseline truths of Christianity. That is the gospel in a nutshell. And so requiring a specific action or a formulaic uh, prayer, uh, it, it, it can cause someone to have a false sense of hope. Right? Because instead of, if you've done that action, or if you said those certain words, you end up finding security in that. Right? You end up trusting in the act itself. And so your faith is in faith, right? Or your faith is in a prayer, in a particular word. But your faith must be placed in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And so instead of trusting in, in this, or those who, who oftentimes place their faith in this action or in this prayer, can live lives that are completely inconsistent with their profession of faith. So they, they say they believe, but they're living a life of unbelief. The gospel doesn't call us to make a decision and then leave us unchanged. The gospel is not something you accept and then move beyond. It reforms the way you live and think throughout your life. 
And so that's exactly what happened to Paul. Notice in verses 13 and 14 what happened as he was converted. In verse 13, or sorry, this is how he lived before his conversion. We'll get to his conversion in the next few verses. But it says, For I, or for you have heard, of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So two things characterize Paul's life before his conversion. One, he persecuted the church, and two, he made progress in Judaism. In other words, there's nothing in his background that prepared him to view Christianity favorably. He, he was predisposed to distrust Christ, right? to want to reject him. So he persecuted the church in verse 13. And in his former life, he went from house to house, searching for Christians and dragging them off to prison. That was what he did. Acts 8, 3. He went from house to house, dragging them off. He wanted to destroy the church. That's his own language. He wasn't seeking to be saved. He was doing the exact opposite. He wasn't exploring Christianity. He was, in fact, attacking it. And so if you've ever met someone committed to breaking down your faith, you know how difficult it is to change their mind. And no matter how clearly you present the gospel, salvation is always the work of the Holy Spirit. And so if Paul could be transformed, then anyone can be transformed. Not only was he a persecutor of the church, he was also making progress in Judaism. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he gives this sort of resume of his religion, of his faith at that time. If anyone, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So those were the things he trusted in. Just like we have our own things that we tend to trust in as, as modern Christians, they had their things, right? They trusted in their works, the works they did according to the law. He thought he would find acceptance with God through his accomplishments, Paul didn't see his sin, at least not to the extent that he needed to. As a devout Jew, he knew all about the prophecies of the Messiah, but he assumed it could not be Jesus. And instead of a throne, Jesus hung on a cursed cross, and that was, that was, it was no possible way for him to, to see Jesus as the Messiah after that, at least in the flesh. And so we can see the fact that Jesus revealed himself to Paul and transformed him into a proclaimer of the gospel is proof that God transforms people. Testimonies, have, uh, testimonies of dramatic changes like that can be a powerful witness that people cannot ignore. But I will say there's a danger in putting too much emphasis on that. 
Right? Some will respond to the gospel purely in order to change their lifestyle, to get help for some, some trial they're facing. And so if change is the primary motivation for coming to Christ, then people will be disappointed. They'll be like the seed that sprouts up for a short time, but it is eventually choked out by the weeds and thorns of this life. It's also true that, that people can change without the gospel. You can see YouTube videos of radical physical transformations, people undergoing some fasting regimen or some P90X routine or something like that. They can experience radical transformation in that physical way without Christianity. And so this cannot be the only thing we look at. Too much emphasis on this change that's required might imply that every Christian should look and act a certain way. We might conclude that a person who struggles with besetting sins does not have the Holy Spirit. We might make certain behaviors a litmus test for Christianity. But even still, those who receive Christ will change. In various ways, to various degrees, every true believer experiences transformation. How can you not when you're united to a perfect Savior? So some change is obvious, some change is subtle, uh, but no one remains the same. Well, let's look at verses 15 through 16, and we'll continue on um, in this passage and look at how Paul was converted. We read, But when he who, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. He uses language here in this section from Isaiah 49, which we read earlier from that very first verse. The Lord called me from the womb. He also uses language that's consistent with Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, in, in his call. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you came out of the womb, I sanctify you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And so Paul here very clearly is making a connection to the prophetic calling upon Isaiah and Jeremiah's life. He compares his own calling to that of the prophets. He saw the apostolic ministry as the culmination of the ministry of the prophets. They were the last line of prophets to witness to God's covenant faithfulness. And just like the prophets, their preaching calls people to repent and believe. And so the apostolic authority is in that same line. Now, Notice how Paul, how Paul transitions at this point in verses 15 and 16 from speaking about himself, his past. He was talking about himself, how he persecuted the church, how he advanced in Judaism. But notice the language he uses here in verses 15 and 16. It's about God's work. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me. It's still personal language, 
He is talking about himself, but it's the work of God in him that becomes the focus, that becomes the subject. And so one of the ways you know that you're beginning to understand the gospel is when you recognize that your actions are wholly dependent upon God's work in you. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, according to Romans 1.16. And so Paul affirms here that God does the work of salvation. He sets us apart. He calls us by his grace. He reveals his son to us. That is all the work of God. God does the work from beginning to end. Those God foreknew, he will eventually glorify. According to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30, oftentimes called the golden chain. And so we are converted not because we loved God, but because he loved us. 1 John 4, 10. At the same time, this doesn't remove your responsibility from the equation. Every one of us must receive the gospel. But one of the ways you know that you've received it is when you recognize that even your ability to receive it is a gift from God. And so Paul's story has been duplicated many times throughout history. Some of the most prominent Christian apologists despised Christianity before their conversion. Think of C.S. Lewis, uh, Nabil Qureshi, um, Peter Hitchens, uh, the brother of prominent atheist Christopher Hitchens, who's, who's dead. But, but Peter Hitchens was a, was, was a rabid atheist as well. In fact, he was written a book about his conversion, Rage Against God. It was his atheism that ultimately, that, that rage against God, where God worked in his heart, opened his eyes to the truth. So when we realize that, that God calls and reveals, that it is God who does the calling, that it is God who does the revealing, then no one is out of bounds from his reach. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. For many of us, the calling of God came when we weren't expecting it. There came a point where you began to see things clearly. And that itself was a work of God. Even though you might have heard the gospel before, you finally understood it. Job says it like this in chapter 42, verse 5. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. So we've considered Paul's life before conversion, and we've seen what happened at his conversion, but let's see how he lived after his conversion in verses 16 through 24, the second half of verse 16. We won't reread this section, but I'll summarize it. Remember, Paul is, is trying to show the Galatians that the gospel message he preached to them was not passed down to him by any man. He didn't receive the gospel from the apostles, making him subordinate. To the other apostles, his message came directly from the risen and ascended Lord. His message was not altered in any way. And so first Paul went to Arabia, where he spent three years there. Uh, and he, we, we assume he, was, he spent that time studying and preaching. He would have had plenty of time for solitude. Uh, with the knowledge of his conversion experience, he had a, a copy of the Old Testament and this newly realized understanding that it speaks of Jesus Christ. And so this is another mark that you've met Jesus. He remains real to you, even when you're alone. 
Between gatherings, you, you desire communion and fellowship with God. We see that's what took place in Paul's life. So these three years, Paul's, that's Paul's seminary experience. He's fellowshipping with Christ. He's understanding God's word. And he shows that both his gospel and his apostolic commission were independent of the influence of any man. He wasn't commissioned by the other apostles. He was com- commissioned by Christ. Second, Paul went up to Jerusalem where he spent 15 days. So his purpose was not to receive the gospel there. Uh, he, he, as, as the Judaizers were likely accusing that he had gone there to just receive the gospel, that, that Peter's the one who taught him, and so Peter, therefore, is superior to Paul. Instead, he spent 15 days with him. That's not nearly enough time for Paul to wrap his mind and understanding around the, the deep truths of the gospel. No, he simply went there to visit Cephas. He wanted to meet him and get to know him. And in fact, according to Acts chapter 9, verses 28 and 29, he spent much of that time preaching. So in Acts 8, we don't read about Paul, but we read about Saul. The name he was called before his conversion. Saul persecuted the very church that Christ died to establish. Think about that. He was quite possibly the most prominent persecutor of Christianity after Christ's death and resurrection. He was the greatest threat to the health of the church. The response from Christ was swift and sure. He destroyed Saul. He, He destroyed Saul's pride. He destroyed Saul's purpose. He destroyed Saul's mission. Ultimately, he destroyed Saul's life. Everything he was living for at that point was destroyed. But what he received in his place was beyond comparison. After working all his life to gain an appearance of righteousness above his colleagues, Paul would say that it was rubbish in comparison to the righteousness that comes from Christ, a righteousness that can never be lost. He received everlasting life. He received a gospel to preach. So Jesus Christ won Paul's affection and changed his world. None of this was deserved. He certainly wasn't expecting it. He was even predisposed to reject it. But what happened? He received it. He left his old life behind as soon as he met Jesus Christ, and God God is the one who set him apart. God is the one who called him, and God is the one who revealed Christ to him, overcoming Paul's natural resistance. And it changed the way he saw everything from that point forward. See, Saul should have been killed, but he was given life instead. Saul was bent on destroying the church. But instead, God made him one of its pillars. Only God could do that. Do you see yourself in this story? You you probably don't persecute the church like Paul. But you need conversion just as much as he did. Do you recognize the work of God in your own life? 
If not, today is the day of salvation. You don't have to wait. You have to go home and reflect upon it further. The Spirit can do a work in your heart even now as you're listening. So turn to Christ without hesitation. Place your faith in him. And if you've already done so, then begin to live for him. Right? Your experience won't be exactly like Paul's, but you must know that you are a sinner. And you must believe in Jesus Christ. And so if you've received Christ, then, then give God the glory for the work that he has done. And seek to know him as he's revealed himself to you in his word. Add to your conversion the adornments of a transformed life. It won't always be quick and dramatic, but it must be there. None of us received an apostolic commission like Paul. But all followers of Jesus Christ have been commissioned by him. And so go and make disciples. Be about the work of the kingdom wherever you are. And as we've come to this new community, begin praying about how we might bring this message to the Tower District. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. Grateful for a kingdom work. Grateful for a God who does a work in our hearts. Lord, that cannot be manufactured. You open blind eyes. You give hearing to the deaf. You exchange hearts of, of stone for a heart of flesh. Lord, you cause us to be born again. And so we want to walk by faith. We want to walk by the Spirit. To honor you. Lord, to continue to believe and to trust that the gospel is just as relevant for us after conversion as it was at conversion. That we would continue to, to look back and reflect upon that work that you began and to trust that you're continuing to do a work. Lord, many of us have, have, have floundered. We've had moments where, where we've faltered and, and seasons even where we've entered into a time of despair and loneliness and darkness away from you. Lord, cause us to repent. Help us to once again see Christ for who he is and to place our faith in him, not in some past action, not in some past prayer, but to presently believe and to trust in the work that he alone can do. And so, Lord, may you be pleased to bring people to yourself in this church, in this community. Allow the gospel to be proclaimed into homes here that maybe have been persecutors of the church previously, despisers of Christianity. But we have every confidence that you can do a work in their hearts as well. And so, use us for your kingdom purposes, Lord. Equip us for that work. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we respond.
the preaching of God's word by singing the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. As we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, I just briefly remind you of the that the, that this is a, a meal for believers. And, um, we we take some time to confess our faith as a, a symbol of what it is we believe, right? That we are united in our faith in Christ, and so we recite the Apostles' Creed together as believers. So if you're a Christian with us this morning, we invite you to recite this. You can follow along in your bulletin there. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He descended into heaven. 
and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, even as we confess our faith, we also, as believers, need to be repentant believers. We recognize that we have not become perfect, that we continue to sin daily. And so we come confessing our sin freely to the only one who gives us this assurance of pardon. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And so let us take some time to confess our sin to the Lord before hearing his assurance of pardon. now this assurance of pardon for those who truly repent and place their faith in Christ alone from 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit well the Lord's Supper is for believers it is for repentant believers and it is for accountable believers it's for those who belong to the body of Christ. Um, and so when we partake in the, the Lord's Supper, we, we open this table up to anyone who, who, who fits those categories, right? It's not for unbelievers. It's not for those who are walking in unrepentant sin. And it's not for those who are outside of the body of Christ. That doesn't mean you have to be a member of this particular church or even a member of our denomination, Presbyterian Church in America. Um, but it does mean that you have been baptized into the body of Christ, that you belong to him, and that you regularly sit under the preaching of God's word. You're an accountable Christian in that way. Paul, in, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, gives a warning. Uh, he says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. He says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so this is meant to be a blessing for the people of God, right? To, to the saints. It's meant to be a means of grace, in fact. Just as much as the preaching of God's word, the Lord's Supper, we believe, is, is a, a work of the Spirit in his saints to, to strengthen your faith, to encourage you, to prepare you, to equip you. And so we believe that, that God is actually at work in and through this sacrament when we partake by faith. But if you come in an unworthy manner, what, what is meant to be a blessing becomes a curse and judgment. And so it's not something to take lightly. 
but it is also a celebration for the saints. It's a time to come and remember what Christ has done for us. And because of his, uh, because he gave himself for us on the cross, because he shed his blood for you, that you might be cleansed and washed, then you can come in confidence. You can come, come clinging to Christ, recognizing that you come because of what he has done, not because of your own works. And so we encourage you, if you're a believer, to come and to celebrate with us. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing upon this meal. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us the Lord's Supper to celebrate this morning. As often as we gather, we do this as a, a means of grace. We recognize that you've commanded us to do this. And so in some sense, this is an act of obedience, but it's also a, a blessing. Lord, you are doing a work through us as we reflect upon these things and as your spirit does a work in our hearts. And we want to give you all glory and praise Lord, we, as we taste and see the gospel that we've sat under and heard preached and proclaimed. Lord, now we have this experience of the visible gospel. And so may you do a work in our hearts this morning. May you encourage us and, prep and prepare us. And Lord, bring us to a place of conviction. Bring us to a place of confidence in the work that you're doing. Lord, take these common elements, take this loaf of bread and this cup and, and cause us to be edified by the work of your spirit in and through this sacrament as we partake by faith. For your glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
you recite with me. First commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Hear now the Lord's benediction. Grace to you and peace from God, our Heavenly Father. Amen. dismissed. Please join us in the fellowship hall for uh, as long as you can stomach the heat. Keep the Father's love for us Have us beyond all measure That he should give his only son To make a wretch's the pain of searing loss the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one